Joseph Religion Group, where our speaker is uh, Peter S. Williams. Peter uh, studied philosophy at Cardiff University, at Sheffield University, and at the University of East Anglia. Uh, and he uh, now works for the Damaris Trust uh, and, and also works as an assistant lecturer for a Norwegian university. Now, Peter has written several books, several notable books, in that from 1999 when he published The Case for Gold, which was followed by a book called The Case for Angels, uh, followed by a book called The Fighting Times. And most recently, in 2009, uh, Peter uh, produced a book called A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. I think it's um, very well on the time of uh, publication, uh, 2009, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. So it's a very great pleasure indeed to welcome Peter. And I would ask him now to present his paper to us, which is entitled The Ontological Argument, Skepticism, Thank you very much. Um, I myself have been on a bit of a a journey with the ontological argument uh, over the years, um, but it's been one in which I've been uh, warming up uh, to it uh, over time, and I hope that perhaps in the course of this talk some people will warm up slightly more to it as well, because I think it would be fair to say it's quite a notorious uh, example of uh, what's called natural theology, uh, and one of the uh, lesser used ones, and indeed I would, uh, as a general principle, uh, this would not be the first argument that I would pull out of my back pocket, as I were, if I were um, discussing um, with someone uh, the existence of God. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I have warmed up to this argument, and I want to say uh, what I can in its favour this afternoon. Um, this is just a quick sketch of, of the kind of topics that I want to cover. Uh, talking a little bit firstly about the, the pretensions of the ontological argument, uh, introduce the concept of great making properties, um, look at an invalid ontological argument, so a bit of scepticism to begin us with. And I will then uh, look at a, a valid version of the ontological argument uh, and say something in defence of its crucial second premise. Um, mainly focusing then on the question, does the argument have any apologetic bite, any apologetic value? And um, ending off with uh, a rebuttal of five common objections uh, to the ontological argument. So that's where we're going. Um, it has, over the years, uh, since it was uh, penned by Anselm in about 1077-78 AD, uh, that's not his uh, dates of living, that's when he wrote the argument, um, had uh, many... Uh, Notable defenders over the years. I've got a list there through some from Leibniz, Gödel, um, Plantinga, Robert Maydell, um, William Lane Craig recently has come out in support of the argument. But also over the years, very notable um, detractors. Uh, not just non-Christians. Uh, my list of detractors here doesn't just mention uh, Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, but it does <laughs> also mention uh, some more serious uh, thinkers like uh, Nicholas Everett, who was my uh, uh, tutor at UEA actually. Uh, but also Aquinas and uh, Peter Van Invagen, um, and particularly, as I'll note later on, one of Peter Van Invagen's uh, criticisms of the ontological argument um, uh, uh, weighed with me quite heavily at one stage. Is the ontological argument uh, a nice knockdown argument? Um, 
I think it often gets a bad press because um, people look at it as trying to uh, achieve an awful lot with very little. And we're innately suspicious of arguments that try to achieve an awful lot uh, with very little. Um, It is, of course, a a deductive argument, uh, one where the the conclusion follows necessarily if the premises are true. Uh, So in that sense, it's a very strong form of argument. It's an a priori argument, um, by which here I think we we can mean uh, it's an argument that's not based upon empirical experience. Uh, I wouldn't bracket it particularly in a class of its own um, any more than from things like the the moral argument for the existence of God um, could in that sense be said to be a priori. It's not empirical experience uh, that that argument is based on. Um, But it is a very abstract argument, and that makes it quite a difficult argument to use in, in, certainly in popular apologetics, uh, where arguments that do have contact with people's daily experience, whether that's empirical, the design argument, or uh, moral, their everyday experience of being moral agents in the moral argument, have much more immediate traction with people than this um, rather abstract kind of argumentation. Um, so, in the uh, textbook Philosophy of Religion, uh, Gerald Jones et al. note that the ontological arguments are supposed to be deductively valid. If we accept their premises as true, the conclusion is said to follow necessarily. I'll give them that. But then they go on to say, under the category of a priori, that ontological arguments also claim that their premises are unassailable, since they concern only definitions and the analysis of concepts. I don't want to give them that. I think that ontological arguments should not aim at, uh, at having indubitable uh, premises that uh, are just self-evident or self-contradictory uh, to deny. Um, even when we're talking, uh, or we, some of it we're talking about def- definitions here, but our analysis of concepts, for example, is an area where we can get things right and we can get things wrong and we can have degrees of plausibility, I think. Um, and under the category of being abstract, Arthur Schopenhauer called the ontological argument a sleight-of-hand trick and a charming joke. And in some versions of the argument, as I say, I'll give him that as well. Uh, so um, in some versions, I think it has a, a deserved notorious uh, reputation. Nevertheless, and this is how J.R. Lucas uh, summed up the status of the ontological argument at the end of the 90s. So the ontological argument has run for a long time, regularly refuted, regularly reappearing in a new form. Something can be learned from its longevity. Its proponents must be onto something, or it would not have survived its many refutations. But equally, it must have been must mis- misformulated, or it would not have seemed evidently, uh, evidently fallacious to its many critics. Perhaps it does express a deep philosophical intimation, Certainly it's been taken to prove more than it really can establish. Like many other philosophical arguments, it has suffered by being made out to be more rigorous than in the nature of the case it can be. And I'm I'm with Lucas on this. I would um, quote from William Lane Craig, uh, recently uh, supporting the argument. Um, He notes, it isn't required that we have 100% certainty of the truth of the premises in, in an argument that we're making. Some of the premises in a good argument may strike you as only slightly more plausible than their denials. But so long as a statement is more plausible than its negation, then you should believe it rather than its negation. And so it may serve as a premise in a good argument. 
So I'm not trying to construct an argument here with indubitable uh, premises that lead deductively to an indubitable conclusion, but merely an argument that is, by those terms, a good argument. Let me introduce the concept of great making properties, the same kind of properties that Aquinas actually builds his fourth way in Summa Theologica upon. Um, We could define these properties as ones that are objectively valuable properties, that a thing is the greater, more valuable for having than not having, and that admit, admit of a logically maximal degree. So if we uh, define this by way of contrast, as it were, uh, non-great-making properties on the left here, uh, size or spatial position, are not great-making properties. Um, that is why uh, oft heard uh, pop science arguments like, oh, there can't be a god because um, humanity aren't at the centre of the universe and therefore can't be important as they'd have to be under theism, are complete non-starters because there is no relationship between the fact that um, you, sir, are in the middle of the room and you, sir, are at the edge of the room and that therefore one of them is more important than the other. Um, logical baloney. Um, being tall is not a great-making property. You can always imagine someone taller. Um, it hasn't got a maximum. Um, being smelly, to use an example that Richard Dawkins uses when talking about Aquinas' fourth way, Dawkins completely misses the point that Aquinas is using great-making properties in his argument, and so he says, well, by that logic, there'd have to be a peerless stinker as well. Um, well, no, that won't work because being smelly is not a great-making property. However... Having power to do things, most people would intuitively accept, is a great making property. It's better, more valuable to be able to do things than not to. And it admits of a logical maximum in the concept of omnipotence. Similarly with knowledge, which uh, admits of a logical maximum in the concept of omniscience. Or being, and this is quite a crucial uh, step of the argument here, which uh, the argument argues has a logical maximum in the property of necessarily existing as opposed to merely existing contingently. So certainly if all value is subjective, if someone was prepared to be a complete uh, relativist, uh, subjectivist about values, then this argument is going to have no traction with them um, because then there couldn't be any great making properties and the OA uh, would be an unsound argument. Well, I think that uh, initial move to kind of of stave off the entire line of argumentation is both counterintuitive, we just need to mention um, properly basic clear examples of things that have uh, value or disvalue, and also self-contradictory. I'm thinking here along the lines of Tim Mawson's um, recent article in Think Journal, um, where he argues along lines that I have myself similarly before, um, that there is this connection between rationality and morality, and that if one rejects uh, the objectivity of morality, uh, then one is undermining one, uh, any claims that one makes to be mounting rational arguments that the opposition ought to um, consider seriously, and so on. One's mounting a self-contradictory position by even uh, trying to argue that there, there, there are no objective values and therefore this argument shouldn't be taken seriously, and so on. Well, why should I take that argument itself seriously on its own terms? Here is uh, Anselm, and there are his, his dates, uh, 1033 to 1109, uh, where he, uh, in his Proslogion, defined God as that than which a greater cannot be imagined, or elsewhere, that than which nothing greater can be conceived. This is a, a definition of what he means by God and his theology. Um, elsewhere, it's, it's been sort of um, 
Tumbledown tea, the greatest possible being, or uh, the maximally great being. That is, a being that exhibits the greatest possible set of great-making properties. Here is Anselm's first ontological argument from Cosmogonium uh, 2. I'll just read through them and I'll, I'll syllogize it for you. He says, certainly that than which a greater cannot be imagined, his definition of God, cannot be in the understanding alone, just an idea in our minds. For if it is at least in the understanding alone, it can be imagined to be in reality as well, which is greater. Therefore, if that than which a greater cannot be imagined is in the understanding alone, that very thing than which a greater cannot be imagined is something than which a greater can be imagined. This is a reductio move. But certainly this cannot be, because it's self-contradictory. There exists, he says, therefore, beyond doubt, something than which a greater cannot be imagined, both in the understanding and in reality. Which, when you syllogize, you find it's a reductio absurdium move. Uh, premise three here, uh, supposing that God exists in the mind but not in reality, is the one that he wants to uh, say, well, no, that couldn't actually be true by the time we get down to the end of the argument. Um, because it's greater to exist in reality as well as in the mind rather than just in the mind. Well, Bertrand Russell noted that it is easier to feel convinced that the OA must be fallacious than it is to find out precisely where the fallacy lies. But let me make my suggestion as to where the fallacy lies. Uh, Anselm's first ontological argument, I think, commits a fallacy of equivocation. It equivocates between God and the concept of God. What exists in the mind is not that than which nothing greater can be conceived, but rather the mental concept of that than which nothing greater can be conceived. And what exists in reality, if God exists, is not the mental concept of that than which nothing greater can be conceived, but existing outside of mind, but rather that than which nothing greater can be conceived itself. And by conflating these two meanings, these two, uh, this definition of the concept of God and God himself, as it were, um, the argument commits a fallacy of equivocation. And that's where I think that the problem is. Uh, for example, in the God delusion, Richard Dawkins notices uh, that even an atheist can conceive of such a superlative being though he would deny its existence in the real world. But, goes the argument, a being that doesn't exist in the real world is, by that very fact, less than perfect. Therefore we have a contradiction, and hey presto, like a magic trick, God exists. To which I would say, well, yes, Anselm's first formulation of the ontological argument is invalid, it is a conjuring trick with words in that sense. Um, but that's not the only version of the argument that exists, and people like Dawkins um, tend to uh, behave as if that is the only uh, version of the argument that exists. They can attack that straw, that straw man, in effect, and then dismiss the whole category. But we have to be more careful than that. Um, this is Anselm's second version of the ontological argument, and perhaps even as this stands, it, it's uh, not quite right, as I suggest it had to be combined with some later insights, but this is uh, more along the lines. He says, it's possible to conceive of a being which cannot be conceived not to exist. And again, he, this is his definition, but it's a slightly different definition. We've got a being which cannot be conceived not to exist. And this is greater than one which can be conceived not to exist. 
Hence, if that, than which nothing greater can be conceived, can be conceived not to exist, well, it's not that than which nothing greater can be conceived. But this is an irreconcilable contradiction. There is then so truly a being than which nothing greater can be conceived to exist, that it cannot even be conceived not to exist, and this being, thou art, O Lord. Uh, what this argument in the end needed, really, was a shift from the focus on the, uh, on the definition of, of what we can conceive to talking about what can be the case in reality. Um, this is uh, Leibniz, and I think uh, his insight that the ontological argument is implicitly assuming that the concept of God, of that in which nothing greater can be conceived, or the greatest possible being, is logically coherent as a concept, that it's logically possible that there be such a thing in reality. And that, I think, was the crucial insight that then led uh, to modern formulations through um, people like um, Hart, Sean, Malcolm, and Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga, rather nice photo of him. Uh, He says that a maximally great being, that's just another way of defining this greatest possible being, a maximally great being must exist if his existence is possible. Because necessary existence is a great-making property. Because it's greater than non-necessary existence. So uh, Plantinga then argues that given that the existence of a maximally great being is possible, it follows that a maximally great being therefore exists and exists necessarily. So um, he puts it in the language of um, possible worlds theory and uh, has, again, another five-point argument um, but I think it's generally conceded that this can sort of be boiled down, as it were, into a, a three-point argument, which I'll give you in a moment. But what this argument basically brings out is the following, which I'd like to give an illustration of. That denying the existence of God is not analogous to denying the existence of life on Mars, say. Um, if I wanted to deny the existence of life on Mars... Well, I don't need to claim that it's logically impossible that there be life on Mars. I can say uh, coherently that it just simply fails to be the case that there's any life on Mars, despite the fact that it's logically impossible that life exists on Mars. However, to deny the existence of God, one does have to make the metaphysically stronger claim that God's existence is logically impossible. That's what the OA uh, shows. And the fact that that is a sort of metaphysically stronger claim, as it were, uh, is an indication that this argument can attach some sort of metaphysical price tag, as it were, to the denial of God's existence. And that's what you need for a, a, a positive argument. So the OA shows that you can't coherently claim that God fails to exist despite being logically possible. God's existence is either necessary and therefore actual, or impossible and non-actual, Hence, if God's existence isn't impossible, then it's necessary and hence actual. Uh, So we get down to this simple uh, syllogistic formulation. Premise one, if it's possible that God exists, then God exists. We've packed a lot into that first premise, but I hope you can carry it forward. Uh, Premise two, it is possible that God exists. Conclusion, therefore God exists. Uh, It's a logically valid argument, it's just modus ponens. Granting certain background truths, like um, being able to accept an objective theory of value and so on, um, the first premise, you might argue, is just true by definition. 
But the real question is whether or not the second premise is true. And this, I think, is where um, the real uh, debate uh, centres on this argument. Uh, As Craig puts it, most philosophers would agree that if God's existence is even possible, then he must exist. So the whole question is, is God's existence possible? The atheist has to maintain that it's impossible that God exists. He has to say that the concept of God is incoherent, like the concept of a married bachelor, or a round square. But the problem is that the concept of God just doesn't appear to be incoherent in that way. It's at least not as obviously incoherent as those other things are. So there's something to talk about, at least. So let's move on to saying something in defence of this crucial second premise. Of course, anyone who already believes that God exists in a properly basic way, or on the basis of other arguments from natural theology, say, would surely believe that it's possible for God to exist, because they believe he does. Uh, So such a person would think that the ontological argument is, technically speaking, a sound argument, because it's a logically valid argument with two premises, both of which, as a Christian, you think are true. So it's a sound argument. You can see why I now make a distinction between it being a sound argument and it having any apologetic bite. Um, Charles Hartshorn said the ontological argument as it stands does not suffice except for one who grants that the idea of God is self-consistent. But here other theistic arguments may help. But of course that's to make the argument dependent upon other articles of natural theology or revelation or whatever and to to devoid it of any independent evidential value or apologetic bite. Um, you know, is this going to be of any use to people who don't already believe in God? <laughs> That's the uh, crucial question uh, in, in practical apologetics. Uh, does there have any independent evidential value, any bite that would make someone change their mind when they're weighing up, uh, do I believe in God or not? Well, Plantinga argues that if we carefully consider that second premise and the alleged objections to it, we'll look at some of those later, and we do that in the context of our overall noetic structure, our overall structure of thinking about things, and we find insufficient reason to think that the denial of that premise is more plausible than its acceptance, the acceptance that God is possible, then we are within our rational rights in accepting it. And actually he argued initially that all the argument showed was that it was rational to believe in God, which was no small fry in and of itself. But later on he actually said that he thinks this is good an argument for a position as any other argument in philosophy. Um, For example, let's try and do a little uh, careful thinking about that second premise. If we grant objectivism concerning values, it would surely seem plausible to say that knowledge and power are great-making properties. While we know that these properties are compatible... Because we humans have both of those properties, although we have them to a limited degree. But I have both knowledge and I have power. So I know that knowledge and power can go together. And it just seems clear that they have a logical maximum, because you just say, well, omnipotence, omniscience. Um, So it's plausible to think that a being could have both of those properties to a maximum degree. And one might argue the same goes for other great-making properties like goodness or beauty and so on. So Charles Taliaferro um, says that it is at least not obvious that the belief that God exists is incoherent. Indeed, a number of atheists think that God might exist, but conclude that God does not. 
Well, certainly for those atheists, this argument would have apologetic bite, because anyone who believes that God might exist, but nevertheless happens not to, and who understands this version of the ontological argument, would see that the two form a self-contradictory set. And at least one way to resolve that self-contradiction is by accepting the existence of God. Um, so this is a quote from a guy called Trent Doherty, whose article, uh, Concise Introduction to the Modal Ontological Argument for the Existence of God, is uh, plastered all over the internet. And at the end of that argument, he says, Since all efforts to show that the concept of God is self-contradictory have failed hitherto, I conclude, somewhat reluctantly, that God exists. I realise that to the average person this seems like a trick, but the average person's not particularly accustomed to following logical arguments at all, much less highly specialised form of logical calculi. Um, What do those who know it but don't believe in God say? They say that the concept of God is incoherent. I have not yet seen an even slightly plausible argument to that effect. Until I do, the OA will be cogent to me. So here is someone who has... Um, against their uh, desires as well, he says slightly reluctantly, uh, come to believe in God because of this formulation of the argument, precisely because of the reasons I've enunciated. Um, So a bit of a recap. Claiming that a thing's existence is impossible seems to be a stronger claim than the claim that its existence is possible but not actual. At least when the thing in question is not obviously an incoherent concept, like a round square or a married bachelor, that certainly doesn't seem to be the case with God. No one thinks that the statement God exists is on a par with the statement round squares exist. Therefore, the ontological argument will have some apologetic bite, at least for some people. Um, However, of course, some non-theists would be willing to pay the, the price, as it were, of making the stronger claim in order to avoid the conclusion. Even though, as Doherty points out, no independent argument has shown that the concept of God is definitely incoherent. So, C. Stephen Evans says that although many of the concepts used to characterise God must be carefully defined and qualified, no one has convincingly shown that theism as an overall view is inconsistent. A system of belief which has been accepted by millions of people for centuries... It's not necessarily true, but it would seem reasonable to claim that the burden of proof rests on anyone who asserts that such a system is self-contradictory. No one has been able to show, says Evans, that theism is self-contradictory. Taliaferro again. uh, The difficulty of securing the incoherence of theism has led many of the prominent atheist philosophers of the late 20th, early 21st century to concede that theism is indeed possible. So perhaps there's a growing constituency of atheists to whom this argument will have apologetic bite. Um, Here's just one example. Uh, Atheist Richard Carrier, in his book Sense and Goodness Without God, he says, I don't buy atheological arguments from from incoherence. Um, These are generally not valid since any definition of God or his properties that's illogical can just be revised to be logical. So in effect, arguments from incoherence aren't really arguments for atheism but for the reform of theology. He's giving an in-principle reason why it's very difficult to give arguments showing that, well, there couldn't be a God, a greatest possible being. Nevertheless, it would be true to say that anyone sufficiently committed to atheism will simply turn the ontological argument on its head. Um, 
you know, granting its validity in the truth of the first premise in the process, um, and it would produce this logically valid argument. Premise one, if it's possible that God exists, then God exists. Premise two, God does not exist. Conclusion, therefore it is not possible that God exists. <laughs> well, what could we say to someone who pulled this switch on us? Well, I think I want to say something like, is premise two of your argument anything more than an ad hoc act of blind faith? What are your independent reasons for thinking that premise two, that there isn't a God, and that therefore he must be impossible? If you can't prove his impossibility directly, they're trying to prove it indirectly here, as it were. What are your reasons for thinking that? Certainly in recent years, the whole project of giving de facto arguments to show that God's existence is impossible seems to have fallen on somewhat hard times. Um, Think, for example, of the logical problem of evil, an attempt to show that there couldn't possibly be a god, given that there is evil. Well, most people, I think, would be fair to say, have moved on from that issue to a more inferential kind of argument that says, given that there's evil, it makes it somewhat more unlikely than otherwise that there is a god. But then, you know, we're we're lessening our claims. We're not talking about uh, certainties there and so on. So what would that person do? Uh, But then we're off again into a whole debate about other aspects of natural theology for and against. So you can't really abstract this ultimately from the whole context of the atheist-theist debate. The debate between the theist and atheist will inevitably, I think, cover um, A, independent grounds for believing that God exists or does not exist, Um, B, independent grounds for believing that God's existence is possible or impossible, um, for example, the atheist trying to show that, despite appearances, the concept of God is incoherent, and see uh, a number of standard objections to the ontological argument that the supporter of the argument has to rebut. And that's the category C that I shall move on to and close with. Uh, and I've put these in what I personally consider roughly ascending order of significance, or the order in which they seem most, most prob- problematical uh, to me, anyway. Uh, the first objection, um, indeed the first chronologically to come up, was the, uh, what's now been called the most perfect island objection um, from a monk called Galauno, who replied to Anselm, you cannot any more doubt that this island that is more excellent than any other lands truly exists somewhere in reality, than you can doubt that it is in your mind. And since it is more excellent to exist not only in the mind line but also in reality... Therefore, it must needs be that it exists. Um, this is, a, a, again, a reductio move in the opposite direction to Anselm's reductio move. Um, but it is a reductio ad ridiculum, if I pronounce that correctly. That is, a reductio that tries to, to deduce a ridiculous uh, uh, proposition from a, a line of argumentation to say that's a stupid way of arguing because arguing it has these stupid results. But the stupid result that it uh, deduces in this case is not a, a, a logical self-contradiction, um, which is the technical uh, definition of a reductio ad absurdum. Um, so one might be tempted to simply tough it out in the face of this objection Um, and without fear of empirical disproof and perhaps that perfect island really does exist somewhere after all it's a big universe stroke multiverse how does Galano know that there isn't an island greater than any other island possible however that's not the route that I would personally take Um, (laughs) I would go more the route that William Lane Craig does 
when he notes that the properties that go up to make maximal excellence, he's talking about Plantinga's version here, um, have intrinsic maximum values. Whereas the excellent making properties of things like islands do not. Uh, For example, omniscience is the property of knowing only in all truths. It is impossible to know any more truths than that. By contrast, in the case of islands, there could always be more palm trees or native dancing girls. Or whatever it is that you think makes up the perfect island. More coconuts, you know. Um, You can always add a bit more island and a few more coconut trees, couldn't you? (laughs) Thus, there cannot be a most perfect or greatest conceivable island. Um, So the argument uh, in this case uh, fails uh, for reasons that don't apply to the ontological argument. And to broaden the point, while many philosophers think that maximal greatness is a coherent concept, even atheist philosophers, as has been said, many philosophers of both stripes think that there's no such thing as the best of all possible worlds, even. Um, I think, for example, of Robert M. Adams' paper, Must God Create the Best?, in which he famously argued that, well, no, he mustn't, there's no necessity on God to create the best possible world, because that, that is an incoherent concept. Uh, For example, physical objects, whatever they are, islands or otherwise, don't have necessary existence, one might very well argue and appeal to the cosmological argument in doing so. Objection two, the you can't define God into existence objection. Um, I quoted Schopenhauer at the beginning here, and this is picked up by Dawkins in The God Delusion. Uh, he says there that the very idea that grand conclusions could follow from such logo-machinist uh, trickery uh, offends me aesthetically. Interesting psychological report. Um, <laughs> isn't it too good to be true that a grand truth about the cosmos should follow from a mere word game? Uh, a little bit depreciatory of uh, philosophy in general there, but he's depreciatory of theology in general, so why not philosophy as well? Um, well, I think this is just a question-begging uh, psychological report. He acknowledges, uh, again another quote, an automatic deep suspicion of any line of reasoning that reached such a significant conclusion without feeding in a single piece of data from the real world. And I think we take it that what he means by the real world is the empirically knowable empirical world. Perhaps that indicates no more than that I am a scientist rather than a philosopher. Thank you for giving us the get-out clause. Uh, philosophers down through the centuries, he admits, have indeed taken the ontological argument seriously, both for and against. Uh, at least he is, is uh, fair-minded uh, to that extent in saying that. Perhaps Dawkins' suspicions is grounded in the mistaken belief that the OA reaches its conclusion, quote, without feeding in a single piece of data from the real world, where data and real world are taken to mean not merely empirical data from the natural world, but any propositional content at all beyond that contained within the definition of God as the greatest possible being. If his focus is on just, you can't define him into existence, well, the reply to that is to say, well, the ontological argument doesn't try to just define God into existence. It starts by defining God, and it then moves on to add another premise in order to arrive at the conclusion that there is such a being uh, instantiated in reality. Um, so Stephen T. Davis says that this off-repeated claim is quite mistaken. It's true that Anselm's definition of God is crucial to his argument, but merely analysing that concept will get one nowhere in proving the existence in reality of anything. 
Um, one must also bring into consideration what Anselm surely took to be certain necessary truths. Um, for example, that uh, a thing's greater if it exists both in the mind and in reality. Or uh, more plausibly, I think, um, that um, the existence of the greatest conceivable being is possible. These claims are essential aspects of the OA and do not follow merely from an examination of any concept of God. Third objection. The existence is not a predicate objection. Um, stemming from Hume and very famously Kant as well, um, endorsed by Russell, um, Everett, uh, picked up by Dawkins and Hitchens um, in their popular works. Here's Kant, uh, and he said this. Being is obviously not a real predicate. It's not a concept of something which could be added to the concept of a thing, that is. Uh, the, pro- the proposition God is omnipotent contains two concepts, each of which has its object, God and omnipotence. The small world word is adds no new predicate, but only serves to posit the predicate in relation to the subject. If now we take the subject, God, with all its predicates, and say, God is, or there is a God, we attach no new predicate to the concept of God, but only posit it as an object that stands in relation to my concept. The content of both must be one and the same. Nothing can have been added to the concept which expresses merely what is possible. Well... There's a couple of approaches you could take to this, but um, Charles Cartshorn here says so that logicians, including some who'd rather be seen in beggars' rags than in the com- company of the ontological argument, have held that existence is, after all, a sort of predicate, even of ordinary things. And Stephen T. Davis argues that, particularly in, in cases where we talk about things that, that are or possibly are non-existent, then it does add to our knowledge of things to, uh, to add the is. Um, in those cases, it might well add to our knowledge of a thing to say that it does or does not exist, and in such cases exists appears to be a perfectly uh, proper or real uh, predicate. But uh, more interesting to me is the line that Keith Yandel takes when he points out that one may hold that necessary existence and contingent existence are properties and agree with him um, that we have no general notion of existence, i.e. existence neither necessary nor contingent. That is, once you've made this distinction between existing necessarily and existing contingently, um, the Kantian objection folds. So, uh, in their book, Reason and Religious Belief, um, Michael Peterson et al. Uh, argue like this, although existence per se is not a property, necessary existence is. Consequently, for any two objects, if one exists necessarily and the other not, that is, con- exists contingently, such that it could either exist or not exist, the first is greater than the second. It follows then that if God's existence were contingent, he would not be the best conceivable being. But God, as the greatest possible being, possesses necessary existence. Therefore, God's existence is either logically necessary or logically impossible. God's existence is not logically impossible, hence it is logically necessary. So they do an end run around the Kantian objection. Uh, fourthly, the um, couldn't there be a quasi-maximal being objection? Couldn't this argument uh, equally uh, prove into existence beings that are like God in many respects, except in some, and therefore how do we choose between them and so on? I.e. that the concepts of maximal greatness and quasi-maximal greatness are equally coherent, and so the former has not been demonstrated over and above the latter. Um, 
But Craig, I think, rightly points out there's an asymmetry, an asymmetry, between our intuitions about the possibility of such beings. So there's any reason, reason for thinking a quasi-maximally great being is possible also warrants belief in the possibility of a maximally great being. But if we think that a maximally great being is possible, then we must say that a quasi-maximally great being is impossible after all, since it's impossible for the two to coexist in the same world. That is, since a maximally great being is by definition omnipotent, no concrete object, no uh, concrete object can exist independently of its creative power. As an omnipotent being, a maximally great being must have the power to freely refrain from creating anything at all. Um, this ties back into uh, our opening lecture at the beginning of the, the conference. So there must be possible worlds, as it were, in which nothing other than the maximally great being exists. But that entails that if maximal greatness is possibly exemplified, then quasi-maximally greatness would lack necessary existence. And in terms of making an ontological argument, that's the crucial characteristic that you need uh, to get to the conclusion. So no OA type of argument could make us believe in a quasi-maximally great being without begging the question against the OA, in effect. Uh, Craig again, he says, our intuition that a maximally great being is possible is not undermined by the claim that a quasi-maximally great being is also intuitively possible, for we see that the, uh, the latter intuition depends upon the assumption that a maximally great being cannot possibly exist, which begs the question. Or a, a slightly different tack that you could take on this parallel, uh, which is Swinburne's argument, that it's simpler uh, to posit either zero or infinity as the measure of any degreed, and we could say great-making property, than it is to posit some inexplicably finite measure of that property. It would therefore be more plausible to think that maximal greatness is possibly instantiated than quasi-maximal greatness, because the former concept is simpler than the latter. Finally, and the, the, the objection that held the most weight with me for some time, is the uh, what Plant, uh, in Vagan, uh, Peter Van Invagen now calls the correct atheist objection. Um, he's a Christian philosopher, uh, and he says, consider the concept of a correct atheist. That is, of someone who believes, and rightly, that there is no perfect being. If the concept correct atheist is a possible concept, the concept perfect being is an impossible concept. And if perfect being is an impossible concept, create, uh, correct atheist is obviously a possible concept. One of the two concepts is therefore possible and the other impossible. They can't both be possible. But which is which? Ah, which is which, see? Well, and Vegan's basically pointing out that one can't accept the second premise of the ontological argument that God's existence is possible merely on the basis of some kind of general rule to the effect that claims about possibility should be given the benefit of the doubt. You can't say, well, it doesn't look obviously, obviously incoherent as a concept, and since we ought to give all claims about existence um, and possibility the benefit of the doubt, we ought to give it the benefit of the doubt, and therefore we ought to give the benefit of the doubt to the conclusion. Say, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. But then it struck me that this question would be pertinent. Is this, this sort of giving it the benefit of the doubt move, the only available independent grounds upon which to accept that second premise. And I think not. Uh, for example, doesn't Plantinga's procedure of considering the concept of a perfect being in relation to our noetic structure, etc., etc., 
go beyond simple methodological rules of thumb about giving claims about possibility the benefit of the doubt? Doesn't the repeated failure of attempts to show that God is an incoherent concept justify a sort of pessimistic inference, somewhat as philosophers of science would talk about pessimistic inferences to the idea that probably our current theories are wrong in some way because all of our past theories have been wrong? Um, couldn't you mount some sort of inferential argument there uh, on the basis of the repeated failure to show that God is an incoherent concept? Don't other examples of natural theology raise the plausibility of the OA's second premise via an abductive inference? And I want to be careful here. This is not to shift all the weight of the OA onto the other arguments of natural theology. Um, it is rather, as Craig says, uh, to use the ontological argument as part of a cumulative case-type argument in which a multitude of factors simultaneously conspire to lead one to the global conclusion that God exists and wherein the ontological argument kind of then encapsulates the thrust of all the arguments together to show that God, the supreme being, uh, exists. And finally, um, I'm not quite sure of my pronunciation on this, but uh, Joseph Sirift, Sirift, um, he has an a priori... Sorry? Sirift. Thank you. He has an a priori argument that grape-making properties, by definition, must all be compatible with each other, for it contradicts, he says, the nature of that which it is absolutely speaking better to possess than not to possess, to exclude any other such perfection. Otherwise, a logical contradiction would arise in that it would be simultaneously better to possess perfection A and not to possess it, because it would exclude another perfection B. And if that argument works, then we have an a priori argument showing that the concept of the greatest possible being must be a coherent concept, and therefore that the argument uh, would go through. So, the ontological argument, is it a nice knockdown proof that will convince everyone? No, of course it's not. You can't get that out of this kind of arguments, I don't think. Um, people who are... Um, prepared to abandon belief in any objectivity of value, uh, people who are so entrenched in their atheism that they'll just turn the argument round as an act of blind faith are not going to be convinced by this. However, is it a logically valid argument with premises that, it's, that are more plausible than their denial, or which at one remove we could say at least it's rational to think are more plausible than their denial? Is it uh, a sound argument? Is it an argument with apologetic bite, at least relative to some people's epistemic situations? Yes. Thank you.